Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Good evening and welcome to the History of Germany podcast. I'm Travis Dow. And last episode, we just started to introduce the Franks, but we've talked about the Franks a lot before, just kind of in passing and um, on on the last couple of episodes. So they've been around for a while. We've mentioned them before. Last episode, we introduced the Salian Franks, and that's one group of, a subgroup of Franks, and out of them came the Merovingians and... Um, so we have Merovig, who's, there's not much known about him, and then his, his grandson was Clovis I, and that's, I just brought him up last episode, and that's where we are. And this episode, we're going to move quick through, through basically all the Merovingians and, and uh, introduce, introduce the mayors of the palace, which will lead to the Carolingian dynasty. Um, so I, I think it might only be, the Frank miniseries might only be four episodes, because I'm just really, uh... Because I'm kind of condensing it to get to the Saxons and and uh, things around just the dynasty, but talk about um, other other aspects of culture. But okay, so sometimes you just need a king to king and and battle to battle episode because the Franks are is the seed of later France, later Germany, and also the seed of a lot of discontent and wars. And so where do, where does all that stuff come from? So th- this is where it starts. This is today. It's the Merovingians and Clovis. And when Clovis inherited the Frank uh, Merovingian kingdom now, Rome was falling apart. We saw this last episode. And only a few Roman counts still held any sort of Roman authority in Gaul. So other, you know, other than that, it was just uh, Burgundians who were Germanic and, and other Germanic tribes. The Merovingians were one of four powers in the, in, in the, in the Frankish realm even. The first thing that Clovis does is he goes after the still crumbling Roman Empire. So there's still one, uh, the last remaining part of Roman authority. He captures Soissons um, with another allied tribe. And this feeds into some previous episodes because we did we did an episode on Alaric, if you recall, or maybe you haven't heard that. But the governor of Soissons, Seradrius, uh, took refuge with Alaric II. Alaric gave him up and Clovis marries a Burgundian to kind of forge an alliance there. And it's, it's actually quite the romantic tale. And Clovis fights the Alamans, the Alamans. And it's this, this is another famous tale, which um, when Clovis defeats the Alamanni, this is where he converts to Christianity after praying, and then he wins the battle. And so that's, that's the famous legend there. He was baptized in Rhymes, along with 3,000 of his soldiers. So there's the first spark of Frankish Christianity, or at least Salian Frank. And there's a famous, and there's a quote I have here, which is, worship what you have burned and burn what you have worshipped. So, you know, flip it around and, and now we're, we're heretics, kind of, but we're going with it. We're Christians now. Um, and, and so now the, the Franks are in a very strong position that we've, we've mentioned that many, many times now in several episodes. And the other Germanic tribes in Gaul were in good political graces with Clovis, or they feared him. So Clovis was a, was a power to be reckoned with already. 
and his sister was married to no less than Theodoric the Ostrogoth, who also had his own episode. The Ostrogoths were their own episode. And when Clovis was baptized, just like we've seen before and we'll kind of see again uh, with the Saxons, um, well, Saxons were actually tough, but the, <laughs> when Clovis was baptized, basically with him, the Franks were officially. I'm not saying everybody was a honest-to-God, born-again Christian, but but as a whole, the you know, it, then it was kind of politically correct to be baptized, and most people did, to, to remain in Clovis's good graces. It was the thing to do, was to, to be, become Christian. The Franks that happening is kind of what really tipped the scale. So at the time, a lot of the Germanic tribes were Aryan Christians, like we've said, and the Franks and later Saxons were Catholic because the Franks also um, forcefully converted the Saxons later, and they were Catholic, not Aryans. Like all those Eastern Germanic tribes uh, were followers of Arius, um, not like the other kind of Aryan, but they were followers of, followers of Arius. So even the Lombards in Rome who ruled Rome, so the Pope, that, that's what happened was the Pope got sick of all these, uh, these German barbarians around him that weren't even Catholics. So yeah, so the Franks doing this, this kind of changes history. So Clovis converting is super important. I wanted to mention that. We, we also did bring this up. Stephen Guerra was on the show um, a couple episodes back and, and I think we talked about, but we mostly talked about earlier stuff, but we did bring this up too. Another reason why I'm going fast. Um, I'll, I, I got some interesting examples from when the Saxons convert, so I'll slow down again. But I'm just kind of saying the same thing over and over. So the you know, the Goths converted. We've we've said I've said that same paragraph in like five episodes now. So that's why, if it seems like I'm going really fast, then um, maybe you haven't heard all the episodes because a lot of this is repetition. Yeah, there's parts of Goal still independent or there that were a war, a war with um, 497. Armorican cities accept Frankish rule. This is, I don't know, it's kind of from, it's like area around Asterix and Obelix uh, in Gaul. So 90 years after Roman independence, these these cities declared independence from Rome because Rome was a crumbling power far away by, you know, by the late uh, 5th century. And um, this also could be that now Clovis was Catholic, so the Amoricans saw this and was like, okay, so now the bishops in, in the Amorican cities were, were more okay with, with you know, accepting uh, Frankish Clovis's rule and, um, you know, joined the Frankish army, I guess, voluntarily. And I'd love to know more about these uh, bishops because, um, anyways, like, once they joined forces with Clovis, it now seems clear to the bishops, at least, so maybe there's some political motivation here, um, Oh, I mean, there obviously was. This was all political, but uh, you know, now it just became apparent to Clovis and these these bishops that it's no good to have these Aryan kingdoms between the Catholic Franks in the north and Rome. So, you know, now Clovis is kind of trying to to, to bridge that gap of of these heathen Christians in between Rome and themselves. And 597 is when Theodoric marries Clovis's sister. Theodoric, also from a previous episode, um, ruled from Ravenna and held Rome at this time. I did one episode on the sacks of Rome um, because, yeah, it's it's important. It'll come up again. So this this all kind of feeds into that. It, it would have been dangerous to attack the Visigoths or Ostrogoths, especially since they got along with each other. But the Burgundians, who were also Aryan Christians, uh, just had to go. So the king was his wife's uncle. So again, now they're already, you already see in Europe, 
this political maneuvering of marrying sisters among among Germanic tribes to keep peace. So it was just kind of a, a guaranteed way to to avoid war and have an ally. So, but now if you do want to have war anyways, despite all this, then you end up attacking your things like your wife's uncle, that kind of thing. That's my point there. So uh, that uncle had killed Clotilda, Clovis's wife's parents, so Clovis's in-laws. And now another bro- another brother saw his chance and offered to betray his brother, the king Clovis, um, if if he'd make him king, and he'd pay tribute and all that. So there's all this intrigue of of um, treason and you know treachery and all that. But Clovis prepared his army and moved south. Yeah, I mean, long story short, he just needed a, a, a an excuse to you know march into Burgundia, basically, to march into Burgundy. And Gundobald is the name of the murderer of Clovis's parents-in-law. He's the king of the Burgundians. Okay, so Clovis is now marching on Gundobald. And um, Gundobald asks his brother Godegisil, who's the betrayer for aid against the Franks. So he's he'll say, okay, set me up as a king of the Franks, and I'll betray them and, you know, join sides. So, uh, yeah, Clovis definitely has reason to, to march against the, the Bur- Burgundians. And there was a battle. And in mid-battle, Godegisil turns around and attacks his own brother, his Burgundian brother. And Gundobald was gone. Um, he escaped to Avignon. And because, perhaps because of this Gallo-Roman uh, named Aredius, who may have just talked Clovis into changing his mind, decided not to waste his resources besieging Avignon, because Avignon was a, was a bigger city and, you know, yeah. And instead, just let Gundobald be king and just pay him tribute, um, that kind of thing. But, but Gund- Gundobald just didn't pay the tribute, um, so maybe that wasn't a great idea, but but yeah, anyways, I mean, Clovis probably, I mean, it might have been a good idea for Clovis to not uh, besiege Avignon at this time, I don't know, who knows, um, but it also didn't work so well for the betraying brother of Gundobald, he also got assassinated, maybe out of revenge, that kind of thing, uh, but Clovis the, the first, my main point here is that he, so now he, he had a successful campaign of Burgundians. He didn't completely wipe them out, but now he, he has a successful campaign against the Alamanni. So we have Alaric from a previous episode on the Visigoths, and, and now it's that Alaric that has to deal with Clovis. They even met on an island on the Loire near modern Amboise, which I just think is fascinating, meeting, you know, these two really famous kings in history, Alaric and um, Clovis meeting on, on the island in, in the Loire, kind of, I guess, is like neutral territory. Not too many troops of either side could be on waiting in ambush. And the two kings departed on friendly terms. Gregory of Tours writes that Clovis had decided he'd had enough of the Arians living in Gaul and wanted to rid Gaul of them. 507 is kind of an interesting date that I'll, I'll put out here because that's that's the year when Clovis really decides to go on a holy mission and conquer all of France, well, or Gaul at this point, um, and first heading from, from the country around Tours to Poitiers. And this is, I think it's this campaign where Clovis really sees himself as a defender of the faith. He's going to kick out heretics. And this gets really important. There's a really, really important um, battle here in, in his lifetime. But this also sets a precedent. Clovis is now a Catholic, and now he's in, a, in the same lifetime from the first Catholic Salian king to the first um, 
defender of, you know, it's kind of self-titled at this point, defender of the Roman church. And he's just trying to expand in the name of the church, expand his own kingdom in the name of church and getting rid of uh, heretics. That's a really important uh, precedence for all future, I mean, yeah, Merovingians, but even Carolingians, they just keep doing this, saying, oh, we're, we're conquering in the name of God. It's all, it's all holy wars in a way. But so, yeah, so he's heading from Tours to Portier. And for those that are geologically challenged, Tours is more in central France. So if you're, um, yeah, because this is kind of interesting. So he's, he's more in uh, the Franks. These Franks are more in, in kind of central northern France, almost to Belgium. And now Tours is in central France towards the Atlantic side of, of France, but still hundreds of kilometers inland, okay? And southwest of Paris, basically. Paris is north central. And Portier is further southwest of Paris. Simple. So he's, he's heading south, southwest. The interesting thing of note here is that Clovis gave strict orders not to plunder or take anything. Only use grass for the horses. So leave the population intact. Don't, you know, don't mess it all up because he wants to conquer this and rule this later. So keep the keep the peasants friendly. This is you know pretty pretty uh, politically interesting, important actually, and also and also I thought this is interesting because it shows that he does have control of his troops. His troops love him and, and respect him as a commander and don't pillage and that kind of thing. And yeah, they weren't they weren't really out to hurt the population, but we're on a religious crusade kind of to uh, rid the Arians of in in the Catholic in the Catholic bishop's domain, and so he meets Alaric. And the Goths attacked first, but as you may recall, this is the battle where Elric died. So I mentioned it at the very end and then just um, skipped the rest of the part because I, I said I would mention the rest here. And so here we go. Uh, Clovis himself had a close getaway and had to outride two Gothic lancers. So just at least that's the heroic tale that the Frankish that the Franks kind of portray. But um, just an amazing battle, you know. Alec Alaric, who's legendary himself, dies, and Clovis, also legendary, just makes a narrow getaway, being chased by two um, Gothic lancers, and he takes Bordeaux. This is an important port on the Atlantic, so now the Franks have another, you know, just more access to the Atlantic. They're kind of interesting, becoming more. Uh, metropolitan and, and economically more viable as a kingdom as they take over these ports. Um, Bordeaux is someone uh, again. So if Bordeaux, I mean Bordeaux is somewhat straight, is somewhat in a straight line from Paris through Poitiers to the coast in the southwest of France, um, and still north enough that it's still hundreds of kilometers from Spain. But yeah, now we're on the Atlantic, and you know France is actually a pretty big country. It's it's the biggest in Western Europe. It's the biggest country in Europe west of the Ukraine. Um, France, if, if you're if you're from a European perspective, France is huge. So this is actually a, a very important campaign just in, in Europe, European history. Anyway, taking Bordeaux is important. That was a big trading center in Gaul and followed um, from Garuma to Tolosa, Toulouse, uh, the Visigothic capital. Toulouse is, okay, so southwest, roughly halfway between the Atlantic and the Mediterranean, not not on either coast, but just south-central France. It's a smidge closer to the Mediterranean, um, but just in beautiful, Toulouse is in beautiful southern France, and Clovis takes that, and he marches on to Carcassonne, 
uh, towards the Mediterranean, okay? Basically, he's basically circling around France clockwise now, now, doing a nice little tour de Gaulle still at this point. Um, but now this marks basically the end of the Vis Visigothic Kingdom, which we've talked about before. And we um, remember that now, 507, 508, um, this is roughly 100 years after the Visigoths crossed the Rhine into Gaul, and only about 90 years since to since Toulouse became their capital of the kingdom. And not to forget about Theodoric, it's it's the end of it's not quite the end of the Gauls the Goths altogether in Gaul, just the Visigoths. Okay, but hold on. Clovis does continue our nice tradition from earlier episodes of Germanic Kingdoms. Um seeing themselves as having the authority of Rome. Okay, I mentioned this in the last episode. It's, and and the, the Roman Empire still exists in Clovis's lifetime. And so the church is, you know, really, yeah, it's, it's, he sees himself as, as a fraterati, if, if kind of more and more independent and taking over, definitely taking over places with Roman authority still as the first thing he does. But um, he then takes these over and says, okay, now I'm ruling as, this Roman, this Roman count also. So, and to solidify this, he is given the title of consul by Emperor Anastasius. So we do actually have a precedence that the Merovingians themselves can reach back on and say, yes, I did, you know, I got um, authority from the Roman Empire. It was a, it was a consul, not as emperor, but yeah, we, we do have Roman authority officially being granted Probably because they had no other choice, but hey. Or because they were a defender of the church, you know, against all these Aryans. So, yeah, it's just interesting, interesting things going on here. The the consul, for instance, he got in recognition of his victory over the Visigoths, who were Aryan Christians, right? So it, it's this blessing of Rome's that we've seen with the Goths and Lombards, um, and even Vandals, now get passed on to the Franks. And it's the, the line given to the Franks that would really come to matter later in the Holy Roman Empire. So why am I, again, why am I talking about Merovingians, which is clearly history of France? That's why, because, yeah, it becomes the history of Germany. So enough foreshadowing. I want to, um, that's why this is important. But let's get back to, to the current events here. And because um, Clovis ate this up. He, he dressed Roman, Roman robes, had a dinky little diadem that he wore around, which I, I find hilarious, but I mean, this Frank, you know, tough guy, but he was definitely, definitely now trying to be Roman and his Frankish courtiers too. He, with some humor, they, they joined in and conned and called him consul. So I think this is still, they're playing this as a joke and kind of it's ironic to them, but you know, he would be called maybe with a smirk or a smile or a wink, you know, but they'd call him consul or proconsul. Um, I, I think it's just, <laughs> that would be typical German, um, German sense of humor even, uh, to, to do this. So yeah, it all fits, but it, it, it still, it was, it was a precedence for his descendants to emulate Sh like Charlemagne, um, who's not the same dynasty, but still Charlemagne would definitely uh, pick up on this. And then the Saxon Kings later would and later Holy Roman empires. And so this is, yeah, I mean, they all, they all trace themselves back to Clovis. I mentioned Louis the 14th in the last episode as, um, uh, uh, you know, discovering Clovis's dad's remains. So yeah, just all kinds of, I mean, these, these are the foundations of the later medieval European kingdoms as far as France and Germany and, and, uh, would, would absolutely change all of Europe, um, later down the road. 
Now, I want to um, wrap up Theodoric. So if you remember on the episode of the Goths, when talking about the Ostrogoths and Theodoric, I mentioned that Theodoric held sway throughout the whole of the Germanic kingdoms. Okay, so he was Visigoths, Vandals, um, if Vandals were still around, um, Burgundians, everybody, even Franks respected him. He held, to some degree or other, he held sway. If he, I mean, Theodoric ruled, at Alaric's death, he ruled the Ostrogoths and Visigoths. Um, Theodoric was the Gothic ruler. and But this is now during Clovis's lifetime, so I'm bringing it up again. It was the Franks that the Romans in Constantinople chose as the countermeasures to Theodoric and the Goths, and who were in Italy, Gaul, Spain, okay? They were just very powerful. And it's this relationship with Byzantium and, and that would allow the Franks to not get soaked up by Theodoric and also help the Byzantines. And so it's this Frankish line that we're setting up now that are the real roots of so much that will come later that I wanted to mention this, is this is kind of, the Romans did this. They, they groomed their alliance um, with Clovis as a, you know, to kind of balance the scales against the Goths. So that's, that's the important part. So pay attention. So Clovis and his purple robes would emulate as much Roman style as possible in the ban banquets he held and encouraged his relatives and nobility to do the same. So now, and, and these banquets would go, so that now we're, we're seeing from, it's a Roman style that would just go right on through to the Middle Ages because the Franks would not stop doing this really. Um, so the medieval banquets, yeah, it, it did come from Rome through the Franks. It's, it's just kind of neat. So... Clovis wasn't the only Salian Frankish kingdom at the time, by the way. So here we go. Here's a couple of battles. We have Sigilbert the Lame. Clovis now, he, he ruled over the area of Cologne, so modern-day Germany, which was already a city, by the way. We've mentioned this. I love talking about Cologne because, um, yeah, it's a Roman city in, you know, modern-day Germany, so it's just a great counterexample of um, Germanic tribes living further east. So there's a city and the area around or between um, Aachen and Bonn. And Sigilbert the Lame got his name by being wounded at the knee, which is hilarious, at a battle against the Alamanni. And using Gregory of Tours as a source here, because um, that's kind of all I could find on uh, Sigilbert the Lame, Clovis talked Sigilbert's son into killing Sigilbert. So he talked his son into assassinating him. Cloderich apparently wanted to gain favor with Clovis, decided to send assassins while Sigurbert was out while he, while he was out in the woods near Duisburg. And after the assassination, so Cloderich sent a letter to Clovis offering him a prime portion of his father's treasure as a sign of their alliance. And so Clovis sent messengers to assess the, the, the size of the treasure. Okay, now this story is awesome, so pay attention. Cloderic had had all the gold gathered up to show the 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 envoy of of Clovis, okay? And I'm I'm assuming the conversation went a little bit like this. So basically what happened was Clovis's envoy shows up and just says, "Oh yeah, that that chest looks full of gold, but does the gold really go all the way down or is there a big lump lumpy thing in there? Like is there a goblet that's, you know, and Clodericus reply, getting annoyed, is like, what? It, it goes all the way down. There's gold all the way to the bottom of the chest. 
and the envoy, the uh, Clovis's messengers are like, really? You know, kind of egging him on. Come on, you know, really? And um, so finally, you know, prove it. And finally, Clutter gets angry and, you know, says this is a gift and um, shoves his arm in between the gold coin and finagles it all the way down. And he's like, you know, up to his elbow or deeper into the gold chest. And now, according to Gregory of Tours, now with his arm embedded in the in the treasure in the in the gold chest in the gold coins, Clovis's envoys just draw their swords and cut him down. Clovis then pops in and tells the people that Cloderich had murdered his father, shows the letter as proof because you know Cloderich had offered to do this, and graciously offers his protection as their new king. And now, so that's how Clover. Clovis takes over the area around Cologne. So Clovis is now left as the only Frank. And and so there's, so now Salians, as, as far as the Salians go, so that's that's it. So he, he kind of takes over the whole Salian Frankish line. And so now he's he's gained control of all the Franks in the Rhineland, you know, in Gaul. And so now when we talk about Franks, we really, we're talking about more and more about Merovingians. Another way that he takes over a bit of land without really... I mean, he, he, there's just great examples of his political movering. So there's Karasik, I don't know how to pronounce the name, in the north, and Clovis accused him of holding back in a war and basically just imprisoned him. Him and his men shaved their heads in, in an old Germanic law, meaning that their days as a warrior were over. So, that, you know, that's the punishment for cowardice. And the son tries to cheer his dad up by saying, you know, their hair will, will grow back and... And, um, you know, they'll get their vengeance. But Clovis heard him say this, and so he had them slayed instead, just to make double sure. So this is these are the kind of ways that Clovis consolidates his power. Another great example. Um, so, you know, humiliating. I, yeah, I don't even know why the son had to speak up. Just, just take your humility and walk away. But anyway, so they got killed. Um, where was I? Yeah, so now he sets his sights on... Cambrai, the, their king Ragnakar, and Ragnakar was a sort of a hedonist. His subjects didn't much like him and just sort of delivered Ragnakar to Clovis because Clovis was seen as a wise, just ruler. So yeah, many, many subjects liked this. Um, to be a Germanic ruler, you know, you had to be, uh, you were a warrior. To be a chieftain, you know, king, you were a warrior king always at this time. So Ragnarok brought shame to their to his own subjects since he was obviously no warrior, and so Clovis killed him with an axe. And the only reason Clovis doesn't really take over the whole world is because he's a mortal man and he dies. He dies in Paris, and he dies shortly after this event of uh, killing Ragnarok with an axe. Actually, and he's he's buried in Paris in the Church of the Holy Apostles. Five years after the battle with Alaric, according to Gregory and reigned 30 years altogether. And he lived to be 45 years old. So remember, he, he came to power when he was like 15 or 16. Now his wife lived out her days in Tours, being the devout Christian that she was, and often visiting the Basilica of St. Martin. The sons of Clovis. So here we start to get into this fantastic Frankish succession. He had four sons. The oldest was 25 at his death and the youngest around 13. 
and Clovis had assumed the title of Augustus. So he was he was calling himself emperor, but didn't really get to do much with it. He died too young to really be considered an emperor of the Franks. So yeah, that's we don't consider um, Clovis an emperor really today. Yeah, and we're about to see why, because to have an empire, it doesn't really jive well with Frankish succession law, because each son gets a piece of the almost empire. It doesn't just go to one person, it gets split, split up into four. So now you're going to have four empires? I mean, the whole reason, you know, an emperor is the king of kings. There's no one above him. There's no, I mean, that's the whole point. So you can't have four empires. You have four kingdoms. So that's why. So it almost becomes an empire and then he dies and nope. So Clotilda, Clovis's wife, had an influence in on Paris um, being considered neutral ground. So Clotilda might have been, you know, is probably interesting for the history of Paris and, and how Paris became, an, a, you know, very powerful powerful and, and important city in the history of the world. Um, Clotilda sets up a, a kind of precedence that no one may come to Paris at the head of an army, which, hey, by the way, was very much like Rome. You know, that's why when, when Caesar crossed the Rubicon, that's why it's so important, because he crossed it at the head of an army, meaning there's no going back. So Paris um, has this, this reputation now of, I just wanted to bring that up. So Paris does kind of become a um, important city, not not yet, but down the road, and this is kind of one of the reasons it, it becomes neutral, even among warring Franks and their brothers and all these siblings fighting each other. Paris becomes off limit, off limits because, and out of respect for Clotilda, this very pious woman. Anyways, enough of the history of France. So um, we had the sons. There was there was peace in Aquitaine. There was peace in Byzantium. Uh, treaties with Theodoric and. Now it all kind of gets sliced into towns. So the, there's the kingdom of Metz is one way to... So here's, you know, the the the, the what the sons inherit, basically. Um, Cologne as its capital, the kingdom of Metz. There's the kingdom of Paris or Sens with... Uh, Sens is the capital. And going all the way down to Bordeaux, Soissons. And it was Clotaire. Okay, spoiler alert, just to kind of move along here, get things moving. He, uh, who, the old Frankish realm would end up on top, okay? So Clotaire is the name to remember. And the, his, his realm was north of the Seine. And Clovis's wife was eventually canonized a saint. So again, that's why she's so important. But it's the son of Clovis who start to put an end to the Aryan Burgundians once and for all. Beat the Burgundians in 528. And Clotar married the conquered king's daughter. So, okay, Clotar, king of Clovis. And even expanded into Bavaria and took Augsburg. So now, I mean, that's pretty far east from, you know, Paris and, and central north um, France. So they're really expanding. He had wars against the Visigoths. Amalaric, son of Alaric, and also this, um, so this this Visigothic king was married to one of Clovis's daughters. So there's more ties there. Um, basically, the, so he was the the sister of the she was the sister of the current Frankish kings, you know, and uh, she asked them to come free her from the Visigoths, and so they did, and killed the uh, fleeing Amalaric in Barcelona. So Burgundy went to the Franks. And around this time, the eldest son dies, and his son, Theodebert, takes over as king of one of the kingdoms. I'm not even going to go into details of which one, and because who cares? And he instantly starts wars with his uncles. 
And he, so he was trying to help the Ostrogoths now as, as one of their allies. He's sending Burgundians actually in their, you know, in their final struggles even. Vitigus, who I've mentioned in a previous episode, he was on the way to Marseille and toward the Visigoths in southern France and Spain. But the other Frankish kings didn't like this and marched against them. So just massive, you know, just this, all these wars in France and, and um, you know, going into Spain and bleeding into Germany. That's my point here. And this marks marks the absolute end of Roman influence in Gaul at this point. Every All these, these sons are just conquering in any way they can, even with each other. And it's just a power struggle and Rome just disintegrates. There is no more Rome in, in Gaul. The Franks are all over. So, you know, you start to see um, Gaul turning into France slowly, slowly. And we go, when we get uh, Theodobert's daughter, Mary Totilla, who we've mentioned in, in the uh, Roman, the, the Sack of Rome episode. And Totilla was actually the guy that wanted to turn Rome into a sheep pasture. Um, so yeah, the, he kind of broke our <laughs> emperor succession because he just hated Rome. So this is all still in the time of Belisarius, who we've brought up, and the sackings of Rome, and yeah, all that stuff. So Childebert, Clotaire, Clotaire, remember, he's the guy to pay attention to. Um, tried to conquer Visigothic Spain, but failed, retreated. Uh, Spain stays Visigoth all the way up until the Muslim invasions, and we did do an episode on the Visigoths. And this is also the time of Saxons, Danes, Northmen already. So we're talking about, you know, Vikings starting slowly, but um, Franks had to, had to deal with all of this stuff as a whole, okay? So Saxons to the east, Danes and, and Normans to the north, and we get the plague. Bam! Almost yearly, after 542, there's a major event, a plague somewhere, people dying. And, and okay, so I'm going to do a whole episode on the plague, and I will come back to this aspect of it. But I, but you know, in this chronological order, I want to move it along right now. So yeah, just there's there's a lot going on here. Um, Clotar married. Clotar marries his brother's wife murders three of the sons. One of the sons had rebelled. So, you know, not just he murders them without call cause, but no, he's, you know, he murders them um, when one of the sons attempts to raise an army. Now, the one of his sons is taken prisoner after the battle and his, him and his family were burned. <laughs> Childebert of Paris died with no heir. Okay. Now his kingdom passes to Clotaire. So now Clotaire has... I would say it's becoming the core of the Frankish kingdom, which is Paris. And he he now reunited Clovis's kingdom. Cool. And then Clotaire dies with four sons. Damn it. So, deja vu. I think the spoiler kind of helps that, okay, Chilperic is the one to remember. One of four sons. There's a great tales, there's there's great tales of intrigue in this generation too. Two characters are Brunhilda and Fredegonda, who hate each other. One's a mistress, but strangles the king's daughter. Just just all kinds of mischief from the mistresses. Caribert, or maybe it's Caribea, I don't know, of Paris was the first to die. So his piece got divided by the other into the other three. And now the Lombards and Saxons came because they've, they've seen that, okay, the Franks aren't doing so well. They keep splitting their kingdom up. So let's let's take advantage. Siegbert almost took Chilperic's kingdom, but Fredegonda steps in again and talks two young men into assassinating Siegbert with poisoned daggers. 
I mean, she's pretty tough. So Fredegonda, interest, like, just a great story. Now, more relatives start dropping dead in this time, often through assassinations. This is, again, the, the intrigue all continues and it's intergenerational. Childebert marched against the Lombards in Italy, uh, but was defeated and had to come back. So the, the Franks are kind of confined to France for, for two generations here and a little bit into uh, Western Germany. And Fre Fregadonda ended up poisoning Childeric II at the point where he had reunited most of the kingdom, okay? And what's crazy is Fregadonda dies, but her son eventually kidnaps the 80-year-old Brunhilde, her arch nemesis, Childeric's mother and widow of two of Fregadonda's victims. And the son tortures her, her for three days, like an 80-year-old woman. Um, and then has her dashed to death by a horse. Like, I mean, this these rivalries are just, just unbelievable. Anyway, like, just incredible, really. Um, so, Clotar II would be the next Frankish king to hold some dominion over all the Frankish realm. But already in his lifetime, he made his eldest son, Dagobert, king of the eastern part, basically the German part. And now we can start to think of two Frankish realms on a bit more permanent basis. We have Austria, Austrian, the Osterrich and Eastern Empire, and Neustria, the Western Empire. Without having a clear border between between them at this point, okay? So we have, um, yeah, I mean, I would say it just goes back and forth so often that forget about that for now. When Clotard II dies, Dagobert, the, the German one, the one in uh, Austrasia, Austria, when Clotar II dies, Dagobert, now the next succession between those kingdoms kind of goes smoothly, so the Franks are kind of learning a little bit. Um, we have the Merovingians now die out in the Eastern Frankish Empire. So we can move on. A certain Pepin of London, a nobleman, or maybe it's Pepin, Pepin of London or something, uh, a nobleman with a lot of power, found himself ruling both west and east frankish realms for now let me explain something for a second in the merovingian dynasty there is a a title in court um there's a there's a person in their court called the mayor of the palace and it's a very important title it's a very important position in the merovingians royal court and we definitely see the Merovingian dynasty in general having trouble. They ruled for 300 years altogether, and in that time their customs developed, their laws developed, and also their nobility and all that. And I, I, so I mentioned that so much in the previous episodes that I'm just not going to repeat that here, I'm sorry. But one title over this evolution of, of their court life and their court, court culture, one title gets more and more important and gets more and more responsibility. And that's the Major Domus, the Magister Palati, or in English, the Mayors of the Palace. And it existed since about, um, let's say, halfway through the, the Merovingian dynasty. So at least 150 years by the end of the Merovingian line. It's, it's entrenched in um, tradition with, these, with the, the Salian Frankish dynasty here. And basically it evolved that, you know, someone trusted can take over small administrative tasks that the king just can delegate, you know, doesn't have to worry about. And then the king can go off to war, that kind of thing. So the mayor of the palace was above all other loitus, the nobility of the Franks, and especially when the king was a minor. So the, the mayor of the palace was basically the regent. 
And if the king was off somewhere to war, which was all the time, then the mayor of the palace basically ran the country. So yeah, it's not, it's not, the early history of the title is really murky, but it's not clear how and when, you know, this or that event gave it more and more power, but clearly the king needed someone to castle sit while attacking some neighbor, and over time this position solidified, and the mayor of the palace really ran things, and the king was a general, you know. And, and ran the army. And it, it could also be said that the Loidus encouraged this position as a check against the king. So it started to represent the other nobility and, and you know, yeah, so balance of power. Now, Pepin, or Pepin of Landen was one of these mayors of the palace and effectively ruled at least the eastern kingdom for a while. The, let's call it, yeah, not quite Germany, but that, that part, and held the title until his death. And when he died, his widow decided to throw her stepson in a dungeon and then marched off to a war, which she lost. But Pepin's son, Charles, was able to escape. And with the Austrian or Austrasian army, smashed the Neustrian or Neustrasian one, and was recognized as Duke of Austria. Du Duke of... No, no, we're not talking about Austria. There's a later... Oh, I don't want to... Austria does not yet exist in any way, shape, or form. Okay, we're, we're talking about the... The, we're talking about the antecessor of Germany, not Austria, really. Um, but yeah, so he's recognized as the Duke of Austria, which is the East Frankish realm, you could call it, the, the Ostfrankenreich. There's, e, there's um, at this time, there's West, you could say like there's the West Frankish realm, which is Frankenreich, and the word for France is still Frankreich in Germany, in German. So there's, you know, this is the East Ostfrank Frankish realm. So that's why, not Austria, I don't think Austria, it's East France and West France is another way to put it. Um, yeah, so not the later Duchy of Austria, that's much later, but he's made Duke, he's made a Duke of Austrasia. Maybe I'll just call it Austrasia to differentiate. Um, okay, now this Duke Charles had a knack for ruling and was pretty good at war, and he was also a good administrator as, you know, mayor of the palace, and also a good, so yeah, good, 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 good on the battlefield, good in the castle. Um, he got the nickname The Hammer, and he got that nickname exactly the way our um, history podcast Facebook pages moderator uh, Jamie Redford got that name. He, he was tough. Charles The Hammer, Charles Martel, um, might sound familiar to you. Charles Martel put his own puppet Mer Merovingians on the throne and really kind of started ruling himself. He marched off east to fight the Germans now himself, not the king, but he does. And the Saxon, so he goes off the, the you know, the, the Saxons, the Alamanni, the Alamans, the Bavarians all felt the hammer. He had to constantly put down rebellions around the Frankish realm, so he was running around the kingdom also. And there's another thing that he's quite famous for, something I've mentioned a couple of times in passing, and I just kept saying I'll get to it later, which is the Muslims show up at Poitiers. And this is the Muslim invasion starting in 730 into Aquitaine. And Charles Martel met them just north of Poitiers in 732, very famously. Although I, what I mentioned before was um, that the battle is often, you know, romanticized and exaggerated because this is where the Muslims stopped. The Muslims did not go any further north from Spain. They kept their Muslim kingdom in Spain for, for you know, centuries, but um, they didn't, they ended up getting pushed back from France and didn't end up crossing the Pyrenees. 
it was not like they met the brunt of of a Arab army that was in northern Africa somewhere. It's just kind of where the tidal wave of the Arab invasion just ran out of steam. That's where Charles Martel happened to be. But he became a hero because of it. And he had to, you know, the, he became the protector of the church in a way. But, you know, had that he was the, the first one to really just stop the Muslims in their tracks. And that's the that's the reputation he got, even if it was exaggerated. And um, yeah, I mean, he then he had to you know turn off in a different direction and go take care of other stuff. The Muslims overran Avignon um, and other Mediterranean cities and towns. But but Charles, so he had to come back and beat them later. Um, and this is another kind of stepping stone in the relationship between Germanic kings and popes, because Gregory III really sees Charles as someone who can protect Christianity after these battles with the Muslims. And these Lombards, who are Aryan Christians, slowly converting, but not quick enough, I guess, uh, are still in Italy. And Gregory III asks him to come and take care of that, you know, once and for all, to liberate the Vatican, to liberate, well, there is no Vatican, but to liberate... Um, the Pope, to liberate Rome, to make it Catholic again. Um, now, Charles Martel never made it to Rome. He died with three sons, Carloman, Pepin, and Grippo. And Grippo kind of dies off the picture. But Carloman and Pepin, who's known as Pippin the Short, or Pepin le Bref, he took over, so they, so Carloman and Pepin take over as kings of the Eastern and Western realm. Carloman bowed out and decided to pursue a career in the church. And so now it's just Pepin the Short. He was crowned king when they decided to stop pretending that Merovingians were still kings. And now Pepin the Short is the founder of the Carolingian dynasty, even though his name's not Carl. His dad's name was, and his brother's name was Carloman, and his son's name will be Carl. So we'll get there. But he's now, now we're first member of the Carolingian dynasty. Mayors of the palace just say, screw this, and, and crown themselves king. And the Mer Merovingian dynasty is over. And he could do this because he basically, you know, the Pope asked for his help. And he didn't even ask for the king's help. He asked for the, you know, for, Pep for Pepin's help. And, and so then it's like, okay, well, I'll do this. But we need to stop pretending that the um, French king really has any sort of authority. And it's, it's time. And so that's, that's what happened. It was the Pope that, I guess, again, so the Pope is, is the person that can have the power to switch dynasties and make it legit. Because obviously Merovingians for eternity could just say, hey, wait a minute, that was illegal. Uh, but the, no, the Pope said, yeah, if, if I crown you king, then your descendants, now it's, we go from Merovingians to, Carolin, to Carolinians. Although, so instantly Carolingian kings start marrying relatives of the Mer Merovingians to really cement their own rule. So there is that. They are related um, after a couple generations. So don't worry about that. It's all, they're all related um, to, to a disgusting degree, actually. Okay, so Pepin uh, 252 dies. And there's uh, Childeric, what, the fourth is still around, but uh, he's stuck into a convent and Pepin becomes king of the Franks. Okay. Now we eventually see Pepin getting the crown with the Pope's help, like I just said. And by the Pope stepping in, you know, Pepin didn't have to worry about retribution and nobility coming, you know, fight, coming up in arms and defending the old Merovingians. And I, like, it was just, it was just official. And now Rome wasn't doing too well. Lombards were in Italy and were stubbornly refusing to convert, like I've mentioned. So Pepin and his son, Charles, not yet the Great, 
received the titles Patricios Romanorum, so uh, patricians, and then they marched off to meet the Lombards. They took Susa and Pavia and conferred upon them the Republic of the Romans and was the first part of the states of the church, basically, a huge part of Italy of which only the Vatican City in Rome remains. But at that time, it was a huge part of Italy. So that's what that's what the Vatican City is. That's why the Vatican City is is independent. It's because of uh, it's the the gift of Pepin the Short, very famously, uh, the father of Charles the Great. Okay, so now obviously really pay attention. This is where the political power of the Pope even really starts. The Pope is now a a earthly ruler. He actually has dominion. He has subjects here on earth. He's not just a ecclesiastical leader. And Charles was 26 when Pepin the Short died. Charles had a younger brother, Carloman, and he dies like two years later. So let's just skip it. And in fact, this leads me into where I want to start next time, which is two whole episodes on Charles the Great coming up. The History of Germany podcast is a member of the Agora Podcast Network. The podcast of the month is David Crowther's History of England, which I highly recommend. We've also done a lot of work recently on the Bohemian podcast. If you'd like to take a look at that, all of my other shows and projects you can find on podcastnick.com, podcast N-I-K. Lots of other new content out. And otherwise, I'm Travis Dow, and thank you very much for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.